<clears throat> so we have another um, second and last English session together. And um, <clears throat> Uh, most of the questions are in Thai, but I'll answer in English. And, um, uh, there is an English, two or three English questions. Um, how can we become more disciplined? Do you have any tips or a thought process or something that you do in your daily routine? Thank you so much for your help. Yeah, I think that the particular um, way in which we uh, instill discipline um, within ourselves um, will vary according to our personality and circumstance. There are some general points um, I could make. One, and, and the... <laughs> And, and it's a very important one for any bringing about any kind of positive change in your life, <clears throat> whether it's being more disciplined or uh, more punctual or, or whatever, um, you know, right from the very basic um, elements of social life. Um, and that is a particular way of, of reflect, reflecting, of thinking about this topic, uh, and that is to um, reflect upon, think about um, all of the uh, disadvantages and the difficulties and the suffering um, that you've experienced in your life because of a lack of that quality. So here we're talking about lack of discipline. <clears throat> And really, don't try to push those things away, even if they're embarrassing or difficult. Um, sit down and write them out in a book, you know, and um, really go through them. Um, and then recognize that unless you um, really apply yourself, that's going to be the way your life is going to be. It's not going to change. If you don't uh, bring about some inner change, then it's not going to get better, it's going to get worse. Um, at least when you're young, you have teachers and parents and people who are um, giving you advice, maybe even nagging you. Um, but <clears throat> and we, maybe we don't like that or resent it. Um, but it's better than what happens when you get older. Because uh, now there's nobody to tell you anymore. And, and I, as you get um, your household or yourself and having your own family or being uh, positions of authority, you know, particularly in Thailand, um, we know you get less and less feedback, less and less direct feedback. Um, and so it's uh, particularly in this culture, it's very easy to get into bad habits and never think to shake them. Um, or not even to be aware because nobody ever tells you, not to your face anyway. So um, really reflecting upon this, yeah, this is a problem that I see. 
And it's a problem because it gives rise to all these kinds of um, unfortunate, unpleasant things in my life. And it's not going to get better by itself. Um, and then, and the, then you take the other side and all the advantages that you can see in having more discipline and uh, reflect or remembering people who you admire who are self-disciplined. Um, and, um, this, this two, uh, two ways of thinking. It was just basically what we call like pros and cons, advantages and disadvantages. Or in, in Thai we say kun letot. And you have to give time to that. It's not just, yeah, 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 it really sucks when I don't have any discipline and it would be great if I did. That's, that's, that's not, um, uh, what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about really going into it and going into it regularly because it's through the reflecting on those two topics together, the disadvantages and the suffering of the present habit, and the advantages and the um, and the happiness that will come from acquiring that habit that gives you the um, the inspiration, the gamlang jai, the patience, and the perseverance uh, to stick with a program of of making changes in your life. Now, one of the um, one of the keys um, to to making big changes in your life is to make them incremental. I don't know if you know that word, but that means just little by little by little. Um, like if you think you have to, you've got this big problem, and you know you've got to do something about it, and it's just so kind of depressing and intimidating and difficult you just oh, I can't do that no, I'm not I just um, so so what you do is you you just take one step at a time and um, remember reading someone um, recounting um, counseling doing counseling work in the states only with obese people you know and dangerously overweight. And um, this particular woman, like many people, yeah, yeah, you know, I really would like to lose weight. I would like to, but just can't, just doesn't have the discipline. And uh, the doctor was giving various programs, you know, look, you need to swim or you need to do this so much, just so many times a week and, and uh, yes, 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 she comes back the week after, did you do it? Well, no. Um, and this is very, very common, isn't it? And, and so he, he applies this technique and he said, look, could you exercise for 30 seconds a day in front of the television? 30 seconds. Can you make a 30 second a day commitment? And and the, the woman just sort of, yeah, I, I could do that, 30 seconds. Um, and you see it's another, there's an idiom in English we say like sin end of the wedge, which means you just start off with something very, very small. But then once you do that, you feel, yeah, I can do this, I can do this. And then you take another little step and another little step until you gradually um, are able to do more and more. So when you see it as like as a really big problem, 
and it's just such it's been such a part of your life for so long you know you just don't know where to start and so it's like all or nothing so you end up doing nothing so what you do is you change your perception of the problem and you you just say what can i do like what's the smallest thing i could do and and this principle is uh, is applied in in is a japanese management um philosophy which strangely enough it sounds very japanese but they it's originally devised in america in the second world war to raise production in the war effort but it's like if you're in a if you're in a, a business and you sit down and you ask every single person what is the smallest thing just one small thing very practical thing that we could do today to make this better company or to make this a better community we're not talking about really big ideas we should be more this we should be more that but what is the one very practical simple thing that would just in, 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 uh, improve the quality of our life together you see so you, the idea is you start off like on the micro level and then you work up from that so um there's a two pieces of advice one is um this creating this gamlang jai and this willingness just to bear with the difficulties of making a change through this reflection on the disadvantages of the present habit and the advantages of the uh, the wished for habit and secondly uh, to create a program for yourself um in which you start off in very modest very small way like say you like writers people with writers block you know you said oh you can't just can't get any words down on paper you know because it's just such a big such a big thing and then you say well okay i'm going to write for 5 minutes a day i'm not going to see i've got to sit for hours and do and and so i'm just start off with 5 minutes a day and and then you just break the ice you see and you create a new perception um some other you know sort of secondary things you can do i think there's a lot of um ways in which um social media can be used um in a positive way you know rather than just keeping in touch and chatting um but if you have friends uh also uh who have the same problem same as would also like to be more self-disciplined and uh, then creating like a, a line community uh, and then keep in touch and when you're you're having difficulties you have someone who's doing the same thing that can help you and you can help them when they're struggling and um using that social support that is possible through modern media and um, to help you um when you take on these kinds of um challenging projects okay Okay, slight change of topic. Could you please explain the differences between the Theravada and Mahayana traditions? Okay, this obviously is rather complex and um, 
topic and, and one which is, uh, there are different views about this. Um, so, first of all, um, you need to understand that um, it isn't really such a um, correct comparison in that Mahayana is not a tradition in the way that Theravada is. The word Mahayana is like an umbrella term. It covers many different um, kinds of Buddhism under one big term. So there's not sort of one Mahayana um, view on this topic or that topic. There's one Theravada view, and then there are many different views of Buddhist traditions within the Mahayana group. Okay. So, you know, although if you look at the statistics for the uh, number of people in the world who uh, follow the Theravada and the Mahayana, then you say, oh, it's Mahayana, more Mahayana. But if you break down the Mahayana into the different groups and different uh, traditions, then Theravada comes out as um, the most popular. Um, the Theravada tradition is one which spread southwards from northeastern India, where the Buddha lived, and um, after flourishing in South India for some time, um, its main stronghold, its main area of influence was Sri Lanka. And um, the Theravada Buddhism that we follow in Thailand um, was, say, imported um, from Sri Lanka. Now, before that was the case, and now we're talking about a thousand years ago, um, there were um, Buddhist monks um, coming over um, from the Andaman Sea, from India, um, right from perhaps the time of the Aso um, Emperor Asoka, um, and in the time of the what they call the Dwarawati um, civilization. Um, and towards the end of the um, Cambodian or Khmer period um, of influence, um, because don't forget all, nearly all of Isan and most of central, north-central Thailand um, was part of the Khmer Empire at that time. And so we have all these um, um, Khmer temples throughout the country, like in Korat at Pimai, for instance. Um, and at the end, towards the end of the Khmer period, of course that's the time when Angkor Wat and all these other places were built, then um, Mahayana Buddhism imported from India um, was starting to um, have an influence. So, um, from early days where there are like Theravada, Mahayana, um, then 
the real turning point in Thailand came about with the establishment of the Kingdom of Sukhothai. And at that time, there was communities of forest monks living in Nakhon Sitamarat who had uh, ordained, become monks and trained in Sri Lanka and then they would come back um, to Thailand afterwards or to what was then uh, called Nakonsi Tamarat. And the first king of Sukhothai, he was uh, inspired with the forest monks and the meditation monks. And so he sent an invitation um, to this community of forest monks in Nikonsi Tamarat to come to Sukhothai and to establish um, the Theravada Buddhist tradition in, um, in Sukhothai. So there was a, a pre-existing Theravada um, group of monks originally from um, uh, Pugan or Pagan. But it was somewhat corrupt at that time, and the king, first king of Sukhothai, starting a new, the uh, first independent Thai kingdom, and wanted a form of Buddhism which he felt had integrity and was um, inspiring. And so the uh, the first um, uh, community, uh, you know, the first monastery established at that time in Sukhothai was the Forest Monastery. And if you if you go to Sukhothai, you'll you'll see um, that many of the um, Buddhas um, sculpted and, and founded in Sukhothai are in meditation postures. So you know Buddha Buddha images are many different um, styles and um, postures, but the Sukhothai Buddhas are, are usually in meditation posture. So the Theravada tradition. Um, is based upon certain uh, principles. One, one is that the teachings of the Lord Buddha, which were recorded, uh, uh, were recited and um, uh, recorded at the first council, that's a big meeting, um, um, shortly after the Buddha passed away, are complete. Nothing needs to be added to them or taken away, and that the um, that all is left is for us to study and practice and realize the truth of them. So we can say that the Theravada tradition is the conservative tradition. That's to say, it sees its role as conserving the Buddha's teachings which were already laid down um, in their uh, entirety. Now, after the Buddha passed away, at uh, that time there was no Theravada, of course, um, but different groups of monks started to um, uh, lead their own, well, uh, different groups based upon different um, attitudes. For instance, one of the first uh, causes of argument or dissension 
um, was concerning the monk's discipline, the Vinaya. And uh, one of the first um, main arguments, and it's one that's gone on ever since, um, concerns the rule forbidding monks from touching money or using money. And already within some years, the Buddha passing away, a lot of monks felt that was impractical and didn't really work, and monks just had a little bit of money just for what they needed. It would be better. And so there were a number of different points of the monks' discipline that led to um, a split. And then because the monasteries were spread out over hundreds of miles or kilometers, and there was very little communication between them, then there was um, different kind of styles and emphasis. And they, so it's not really correct to call them sects in the way that you would call, um, say, groups in, in Islam or Christianity sects, because it wasn't so much they had different beliefs, it was different, just different styles. And if there were differences, it was in the veneer. Um, so many different groups emerged. And one, uh, then after about 500 years, um, what we call Mahayana really started to develop. And number of um, texts were appeared, which were called Sutta or Sutras, Sanskrit. Um, and they were all saying, and the Buddha said this, and the Buddha said that. And so the conservatives would say, no, he didn't. He didn't say that. That was never recorded um, after the Buddha passed away. You, you've written that yourself. You see? Um, and so the, the reply to this was that at the time of the Buddha, the, uh, there were certain very profound teachings which um, the Buddha felt his disciples could not were not ready to understand, and so he um, taught them to the devas and told the the devas tevada, you know, just to keep these, and then in the future, when these really smart people are born who can understand this, then pass this on. So they're saying this is why you know it says these are teachings of the Buddha, um, but they don't. You know, they've just suddenly appeared because they were with the Devada all this time. So this is like a faith of the Mahayana uh, monks. But if we look at the Mahayana texts, which are called suttas or sutras, it's very clear that the philosophy behind them varies from text to text. Whereas the suttas in the Pali Canon, in the Pratraipitok, are very clearly uh, one voice. Um, you can pick up any book. Yes, it's the voice of the Buddha. It's the same way of talking. There's so um, from a Theravada point of view, um, the the teaching that we think of 
with regard to the Mahayana Sutta is the one in which the Buddha picked up a handful of leaves and he said, he asked his disciples, which is more, the leaves in my hand or the leaves in the forest? And of course his disciples said, well, the leaves in the forest are so many more than the ones in your hand. And the Buddha said that the Buddha knows so many things, you know, so many things, like all the leaves in the forest, but he doesn't teach all those things. He just takes up the handful of things, only those things that will lead you to enlightenment, to peace and wisdom. So in the Theravada tradition, we say, yeah, all these different uh, profound philosophies and everything, uh, we're not saying that they're untrue, we're just saying they're not necessary because the Buddha has already picked out the, ne- the ones that we need to know and life's too short, you know, to have to um, study all that. Okay, the, this is a very big topic and um, maybe uh, one, one or two other points. The Mahayana tradition was um, very successful in spreading throughout the world because it was a, what we could call a liberal tradition rather than a conservative tradition, if we can use those two terms. And that meant that when the monks from India went to China and to Korea and to Tibet and all these places, then they were willing to adapt to the cultures, the countries they found themselves in. And their idea was that you just keep like the essence of the teachings, but in the minor things, we should be willing to adapt in order to be able to share the Buddhist teachings with as many people as possible. So this this meant it was a very, uh, it's been called by one scholar, a very portable religion. And um, so Buddhism spread, you know, along the Silk Road and into all the, into um, Pakistan and Afghanistan and uh, all those um, Stan countries like Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, you know, even Iran was uh, a Buddhist country. Uh, for some time, Mahayana Buddhist, before it was converted to Islam. <clears throat> so very, um, very flexible. But of course, the, the question with that kind of policy or idea is, who decides what's the essence and what's not? What you can let go and what you keep, keep on? Who decides? You see, because it's not always so clear. And so when we get to, like, Japan is a good example. Then there are Buddhist sects in Japan whose basic ideas and philosophy is so far from the original Buddhism of India that it's almost a different religion. Um, So. For instance, like about, I guess, uh, eight, nine hundred years ago, then the Pure Land sects, uh, Nichiren and, and all these different se- and, and various religious figures came and they 
they believed that um, this was a time of uh, corruption and that people no longer have the barami to become enlightened. And it's very arrogant to think that you do have that and you should be just humble and accept that. And so you pray to Buddha, uh, Amitabha Buddha. And then the idea is if you pray very sincerely to Amitabha Buddha, then after you die you go and live in the pure land with Amitabha Buddha and then you can meditate and then you can get enlightened. Um, so in this lifetime, it's a life of, um, shouldn't, monks don't need to um, lead a celibate, like monks should get married and just lead a normal life and be humble and, and everyone should just pray to Amitabha Buddha. Yeah. Um, so it's very similar to Christian or any religion where you pray to God um, and the characteristic ideas, like fundamental idea of, of Theravada is confidence in your own capacity or potential for enlightenment, whether you're a man or a woman or wherever you come from. And that's not something that you lose because um, if you're a human being, that means whatever um, period of history you're born in, as long as you you know, you've got a body and mind, you have the capacity for enlightenment. And so that idea was discarded in uh, um, some Japanese sects. And then in each country, the Buddhism adopted some of the ideas and culture of the countries that they spread into. So um, in Mahayana Buddhism, like this, um, Jang Me Kwan Im, uh, um, and worship of Bodhisattvas, and uh, so this human beings tend to want to worship things and ask for things, and um, and in Theravada, then we you know we we uh, don't agree with that. So yeah, if you want to go and uh, if you really want to go and and bow to something and make offerings and then ask to you know. Um, pass all your exams or have a baby or something, then go and do it with a, with a Hindu shrine. Don't be, don't do it with a Buddhist shrine because it's nothing to do with Buddhism. But in, in Mahayana, then, then there's this, um, uh, sort of, uh, all these bodhisattvas and you can pray to bodhisattvas and ask them to help you do this and do that. So, um, the idea of um, the meaning of the word Buddha changed. In, in Theravada teaching, there's just one Buddha at one time. So now we're in the era where there is um, Gautama Buddha, Jau uh, Chai Siddhartha. He, he became the Buddha. But in uh, Mahayana philosophy, Buddha just means, uh, changed its meaning uh, to, to mean the highest level of attainment. So in Theravada, this is the highest thing that you can realize, you become an arahant. But in, uh, in the Mahayana, the idea, or the, uh, particularly in the Vajrayana, which development from it, is that you can become a Buddha. Um, so um, I, uh, I was in Tibet, in eastern Tibet, a few months ago, I told you, and... And all the villagers were coming out of their houses and 
They're all saying, oh, a living Buddha, a living Buddha. <laughs> so, no, no, I'm a living Buddha. Um, so that, that's, that's their way of, you know, uh, you know, if it was, um, Isan or somewhere like this, very faithful villages, they would say, oh, prapati pati pati pacha. But in, uh, in that culture, they would say, oh, he's a living Buddha, you see. So they have a different idea of what Buddha means. So, so many of the, key technical terms are understood in different ways. So, it, And even in the Mahayana tradition itself, many differences. So, you know, I could talk for <laughs> all day on this, so maybe I'll just leave that one for now. Okay. I'm giving precedence to English questions. Okay. English one. It's a tiny one. Okay, another change of pace. Um, I'm in a long distance relationship <laughs> and everything is going well, but there are times when I really miss my partner. Could you give any advice on how to deal with strong emotions of this kind? Yeah, um, I think that um, I think it's generally agreed that long distance relationships are tough. Um, but having said that, probably easier um, these days than ever before in history, uh, because when you miss someone, you can just Skype them. And um, um, so, you know, when I was young or. <laughs> Or for hundreds of years before that, that would be like magic. Um, so you can you can Skype people, you can phone people, you can text people. You can. So it, it, it's not it's not so bad, is it? Um, but uh, it's it, whatever. I mean, it's difficult, and there are times when strong feelings of missing someone or. You know, they're over there and you don't know what they're getting up to and maybe they're seeing somebody else and you, how would you know? And all these kinds of thoughts that can go through your mind. Um, so, um, but, well, well, let me tell you, um, just, uh, this isn't really, you know, the same, but when I, when I was a young monk, then so many people, you know, be, uh, Western monk in, in, uh, Forests in northeast Thailand, the forest monastery was still quite new, and people were very excited and couldn't because family um, is so strong and important in in Thailand. The idea of leaving your family and coming and living the other side of the world and not having any contact or very little contact with uh, um, I think I was here for a f you know a few years before uh, I was able to make a telephone call home. At least to write uh, like aerogram letters once every couple of weeks, but um, so people would often ask, you know, uh, um, and um, I didn't, I didn't, um, I wasn't homesick, not at all. <laughs> I mean, that, that I mean that might have been because I left home when I was very very young, when I was seventeen, and. Um, and I never really ever felt at home in England anyway. But, um, 
but I, I, I appreciated the fact that we have two words in, um, in, in Thai. One is kitung, and the other one is reluctung. So I, I would tell people, no, make kitung ban, they're reluctung. See, if you, uh, Nung Po Chai, Ajahn Chai used to say, kitung ben thuk na. So, uh, but when you're reluctant, you know, you don't, you don't feel sad. You know, when you are reluctant, you, you, you think about the things that you love and appreciate, um, in the one, the people you've left behind or the people who are living far away at that time. And you, you feel grateful for those things and for, um, what you've received from those people in the case of your parents. But, when you when you kitung, you know that that means that you're um, you're in a you're in a battle again, you know, against nature. You now, if you you ever heard the story about the the king of England, King Canute, you know, and and uh, you know he was so uh, uh, the story being that you know he he was so convinced he was all powerful, they took him to the beach, you know, and tell the sea to stop. The tide from stop coming in, you know. Even a king can't do that. Um, and you know, if you're um, living in different countries and different continents, and just constantly raging against that and and regretting it, and uh, then you know um, you're just fighting against nature. And um, this is it's like this. It's this way. This is how it is. You know, and it's this way. You've chosen it. You know, you're not being forced to have a long-term relationship. You want to have it. That's why, that's why you have it, because you want it. Um, but, um, you know, I think it's a mistake to think that being in love makes you happy. I mean, there's, there's, sure, there's happiness, of course, otherwise people wouldn't fall in love. But there's always a shadow to it. You know, even if you live, whether you're living together or you're living far away from each other, there's always pain of one level or another involved in loving somebody. And and if you don't have too unrealistic expectations of love, you see, yeah, um, love is wonderful. It's great to love someone and be loved, but it's not roses all the way, and it's you know never has been, never will be. And there is always um, this kinds of, of pain, and and the pain of separation. Um, that is not necessarily a, a geographical problem. That's to say, you could be living with someone in the same house or see them every day, and then you have an argument, and you know you just can't bear to speak to that person, and you just feel. As like your miles and miles, you could be on different continents. You know, there's just no connection, no communication, and there's that sense of grief when that happens. When you just can't explain yourself, or you can't understand, or they can't understand you. So that that's part of life, isn't it? Um, so recognizing, yeah, this is this is what it's like. It's like this. Um, um, and not and not making it worse than it is by fighting against it. So uh, the Buddha gave a example like when something bad happens or something unpleasant, um, he he compares it like being shot with an arrow. 
Um, and he said that being shot by an arrow is bad enough. Um, but when you uh, don't accept the truth of things, when you're fighting against things, and when you're um, allowing your mind just to go round and round and round, it's like you put poison on the arrow. You know, so it makes it so much worse than it needs to be. So um, the most direct um, answer to this question is, is really what we're doing. Meditation practice is how you develop mental strength and resilience and you begin to understand how emotion works and you don't identify with emotion in the same way. You know, it's not that you don't want emotion, you just shut yourself down and become like a rock. And uh, that's not what meditation is about. But it means that you realize that the, uh, the meditation, uh, the storm, uh, this emotion, if you can say, is like a storm. If you imagine the ocean and there's a storm, and then the water at the, the top level, the surface level of the ocean is, you know, huge waves and, and commotion. But then when you go down, down below the level of the, um, uh, down some meters, some, some yards, then the water is very still. So, um, there are two things going on. The surface level of the ocean is full of you know, uh, fire commotion and, and um, huge waves and so on. But you go down, and it's not that way at all. And in meditation, you develop this. Although there are emotions arising and passing away, at the same time, you have the sense of this like body of the ocean, which doesn't change. So you have both the changes of emotion and then the side which doesn't change together. And it means that um, you don't, you want to become without emotion, obviously. Um, but you don't experience it in the same way. And this is something that you can develop through meditation. Okay. Okay, I think we're at the end of English. Oh, here's another English. Okay, this is a meditation question. <clears throat> so I'll, I'll try to avoid technical language. What are the jhanas you know, in Pasataiwa Chan, and how can they be attained through meditation? Are they stepping stones towards attaining Nibbana? Okay, so very, um, very simply, um, the path of meditation, if you take a, a meditation object, um, you immediately encounter difficulties. And these, there are five main kinds of, of um, obstacles that arise um, during this first period of meditation. Uh, and it's, it's not an initial thing. It takes years or your whole lifetime to deal with these. Um, but the first, the first kind of obstacle is when your mind just wants to think about things that we enjoy thinking about. So you get bored with the meditation and you want to be thinking about 
holidays and going shopping and food and boyfriends and girlfriends and you know things that when you think about them it's like really sanuk uh, and really plan um, you see so that's that's one obstacle the second one um, is like negativity and it can be you're sitting there and suddenly you just think about what somebody did and somebody said and how much you hate them and then all these kinds of negative thoughts or it can just be little um ordinary aversions you know it's too hot it's too cold it's too early it's too late i'm too hungry i'm too full i'm this and that and why is he like this and why is she like that and why do we have to do this and all that 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 kind of com- negative commentary in your mind that's the second obstacle the third one is sleepiness and dullness and laziness and the fourth is mental agitation and um anxiety and guilty feelings and the fifth is doubt and confusion so these what we call the niwan and or niwarana or niwan um are the work that that you're doing in meditation learning to see these things learning how to deal with them so if you persevere um these um hindrances um become weaker and weaker until eventually they disappear so that's that's when the five hindrances are absent when there are no hindrances in the mind this is the first stage of samadhi okay now at this stage apart from the absence of the hindrances then the mind is very also almost automatically focused on the meditation object um and it's um it's it focuses and it it uh, penetrates the meditation object almost effortlessly and there's a sense of um joy and well-being and unity in the mind now these these characteristics or, or features um of the mind become stronger and stronger until we reach uh, when they become uh stabilized then um the mind is said to enter into the first jhana or chan now um following this as meditation develops there is a process by which the mind becomes more and more subtle and that means the most the coarser si- um elements of the first jhana disappear and if that here um is two is called vitaka and vichara now in thai this usually translates as vitok vijan but you have to understand that doesn't mean like vitok and vijan as we would use those words everyday language they these are special meaning so it means that there's no longer with these two disappear there's no longer a sense of your concentrating or your focusing on an object uh, the mind is still um and there's inner silence and so now the the factors of of rapture or joy and well-being um and 
um, unity of mind become very clear. Then as the, the meditation progresses, that's the second jhana, third jhana, the sense of rapture and joy disappears because it's still kind of an excitement of the mind. Uh, and then um, there's the deep, very profound sense of happiness or well-being. And then that even that fades away. And the mind tends to fourth jhana in which the um, there's usually at this point there's no sense you don't even feel there's any breath anymore there's no body anymore there's nothing there's just a sense of knowing there's just the mind like pure mind and so coming out of that um, one of those jhanas um, into um, the pre jhana state then the mind is very very powerful and that is the time in which the practice of vipassana can be um, uh, can be pursued most effectively. So the role of jhana or samadhi is that it prepares the way for the wisdom faculty to penetrate the three characteristics, trilak. So it's not that jhana in itself is nibbana, but it um, gives the mind the strength and the brightness and the sharpness and the clarity which um, enables um, vipassana. Okay, so that's a technical term. So we're going from long-term relationships to Mukpondipan and uh, back again. So this is um, okay. Um, yes, at last, a question about ghosts. I thought you... <laughs> Okay, there's still there's two questions here. Once, uh, is there a spiritual world? If so, what is it like? Um, well, yeah, that's a very um, vague um, title, isn't it? A spiritual world. Um, there are there are um, many um, kinds of beings which. Uh, we are not, as usual, normal human beings, able to see and hear. And that's not, I think, difficult to understand if you, if we compare with just on a on a um, more uh, mundane level, um, animals like dogs. Dogs can hear things that we can't hear, and there's very many animals that can see things that we can't see. Um, because our ears can only hear a certain range of sounds and other animals can hear a, a larger range. Um, so there are all kinds of things, sounds and um, sights that um, we can't see, we can't register simply because we don't have the instruments. Our, our senses are not sensitive enough. Um, but that, of course, doesn't mean that they're not there. Um, and uh, some people can see spirits and things and um, without any 
meditation training, and this is usually um, just something that they've uh, a gift that they've inherited from past life. Um, some people, some monks, some nuns, some meditators um, are able to perceive um, spirits and so on. But this isn't really the um, the most important point. You know, the, the important point is, um, you know, well, how should we relate to spirits and things? Because also, you know, before I excuse me, before I go on to that point, um, it's true that some people do see spirits, but a lot of people see things which they say are spirits and they're not. As you know, so you know maybe ninety percent is upatan, yeah. yeah. So um, you know, ha having said that, there are spirits. Doesn't mean that every time someone says they see one, that that they do. Um, you know, often they they can be mentally ill, or it's just um, you know just through power of thought or bungdang, or they watch too many ghost movies and. Um, but um, the the important thing as Buddhist um, is that we don't see these beings as anything special. You know, they're just uh, fellow travelers, if you like. Or in the Buddhist idiom, we say they're companions in birth, old age, sickness, and death. Bin puan, good, get jip die. Um, and we don't think that they have some special power that we can offer them pig's head or something like that, then ask for all kind of special favors, you know. Um, because even if you can, they say, even if you can um, contact some, some, someone from the spirit realm, okay, and they say, you know, I'm... Rajagandhiha, you know, or, or I'm Queen, Kilo, Queen Cleopatra or something like that. How do you know they're telling the truth? Uh, why, why is it that, you know, when people do, you know, Khao Song or something, you know, it's always like really famous people, you know. It just seems to me uh, just a little bit unlikely, you know. And, um, and how can you trust these kind of how could you trust anybody who takes a bribe, you know? Because that's basically what you're trying to do when you make offerings. You're offering a bribe. So basically, if there are the spirits, the ones that you're contacting are the corrupt ones who take bribes. You see, and how can you believe what they say? Um, so uh, it's better to um, you know keep an open mind. You know, in, in both ways. Yeah, there are such things. There are beings that we can't see. Um, and, um, uh, you know, um, people tend to be f afraid about this, but there are all kinds of things that we can't see. Um, you know, like radio waves and, and, <laughs> and, uh, all kinds of radiation and, and, and stuff. Um, but, why do we think that these things are malevolent or they're going to do something to us? I mean, in, certainly in the case of uh, people trying to lead a good life, then the kind of unseen beings that are going to have any effect at all are going to be the dewas, not the pi or you know things that are frightening and and malicious. 
um, like the the Devada are really drawn. It's like a, goodness is a magnet for for Devada. They love goodness and kindness, um, and um, they are able, in certain cases, to provide some protection. But it's not um, something that we we need to really think about very much. You just do what's the right thing to do, and um, that's a protection against malevolent forces and a drawing of positive energy to you. To what extent that is present and exists, we don't know. Um, but basically, whether there are or are not such beings. Um, the way that you live your life um, doesn't shouldn't be affected by that, um, because if you're if you're leading a trying to lead a good life, whether or not there are unseen beings, you'll receive the benefits from that. If you're leading an unskillful and foolish life, whether or not there are unseen beings you'll receive the, the, the fruits of that. Um, and none of these beings are going to be able to prevent that happening. Okay, how many of you have seen a ghost? Hmm. Anybody? No. How many of you are afraid of ghosts? Yes. Okay. มาดาถ้าเราโกหกเพื่อให้อีกฝ่ายอีกฝ่ายสบายใจขึ้นจะถือว่าบาปไหมครับอ่าเอ่อ um, so i've already um explained this point i think that um something uh with how we decide on something is bap or not is by looking at the intention. So, what is the intention here? So, um, somebody might say, well, the intention is tell a white lie so as not to hurt someone's feelings or to make them feel better. But no, the actual intention is not that. The actual intention is to say something that you know is not true. So, whenever, for whatever reason, you say something that you know is not true, then that is bad. Okay? It might not be, in this case, if you have, you know, you want to save somebody embarrassment or, or pain, then it's, um, be very, you know, weak, um, bab or padkama, but it's still bab because you have the intention to lie. Now, the, um, this idea that you know you should that that you have a choice um a two you have two choices this is a false dilemma you know the idea you have one you tell the truth and that person's upset or two you tell a lie and they're happy so which do you do but it, it that's not the case so if you're practicing um uh, the dhamma then it's a challenge to your wisdom. So you're, what you're thinking in your mind is, 
shall I, you're not thinking, shall I tell a lie and keep them happy or shall I tell them the truth and risk them being upset? Um, yeah, I do like your hair in that style. It's lovely. No, you see, you know, um, what you do is you ask yourself, how can I, um, one, tell the truth or not tell a lie and two, avoid hurting that person's feelings? You see, it's not a either or situation. It's a false dilemma. So it's this, how can I respond uh, in a way that I don't lie and I don't hurt that person's feelings? Okay. So it's not so easy. That's why it's a training. That's why it's a kind of education. Hmm. So let's see. Someone has their hair cut and you think, oh, and they say, do you like it? What would you say? Okay, ask the boys. Your girlfriend cuts her hair. And she says, what do you think? Who's got a good answer? Or maybe you like it. <laughs> hmm? Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, that's um, anybody other girls can answer, you know, if your boyfriend has hair cut and uh, if you like it then I like it too. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's a good one. Um uh, my experience is they won't accept that one. <laughs> <laughs> I remember trying that one out myself. <laughs> yeah. Anybody? Or somebody takes hours cooking you a meal, you know, and, you know, you can hardly get it down your throat, and they say, is it delicious? So what do you say? Mm. Yeah, okay, I'm not putting you on the spot, but you just give, that, give it some thought, you know, because it's not the case that you have to lie to tell someone uh, to keep somebody happy in that way. You know, be skillful, be thoughtful. Um, and the, the thought, you see, um, the, the disadvantage is that there are a number of disadvantages. One is, you know, who decides what's a white lie? You know, what, when does a white lie become a grey lie and when does a grey lie become a black lie? You know, where's, where's the boundary, you know? Um, and, and sometimes, you know, you say, oh, it's just to keep them happy, you know, not afraid you'll hurt their feelings, but often you're not being honest with yourself. It's just because you feel awkward or you feel anxious, or you're worried they won't like you so much, or you have a certain image. And, and so there are all kinds of other things that are coming to um, play, a, play a role here. And the, um, the other thing is that um, any kind of relationship, you know, um, it, what it needs more than anything else, I think, in long term is trust. Um, you know, if you lose your trust in somebody, you know, you can never really feel at ease. Um, you can never really feel comfortable. Um, 
in in any real way and and so if you find someone you love lies to you even if you know you you think yeah it's quite likely they're just just a white lie but it, you can't forget that because you know oh he or she is someone who will under certain circumstances tell me a lie and then you know you can't help thinking well if they're willing to lie about this then maybe they're willing to lie about something else if they're willing to lie about small things maybe in certain cases where there's a lot of pressure or they're really afraid that they'll lose us or something maybe they lie about important things you see so it's like a it's just like a little crack in the in the dam wall you know just just one just one little lie when it's discovered then it can change a whole relationship just one small thing can have a huge effect you know and <clears throat> so this is why uh, in relationships telling the truth is so important and i'm not saying that you should tell everything you know because some things you don't need to share they're private and maybe you, you have some strong feeling um and <clears throat> if you uh this is one of the values of a long distance relationship when you have a strong feeling and then by the next time you skype you've forgotten about it um but if you're with somebody in the moment you know you have to feel honest you know i have to really say i'm really angry with you about this you know i really need it um and and something really small becomes something very big so being honest doesn't mean you have to reveal everything that happens everything you think and feel um but it means not uh lying and distorting and exaggerating and hiding things from each other um and that's how trust is developed and you know what what can be what could be better you know what what you know so, what could be more valuable than to have somebody you know i could trust that person with my life you know have you do you know people like that you could say i know that i can trust that person with my life and uh, and you know this is one of the things that um wonderful things about becoming a monk you see you say oh yeah monks it's quite tough life maybe and you know give up all these things but you have the best friends that you any human being could ever have you know you can look around it's not like you can think of like one person in the whole world that you could trust your life to you can think of 10 and 20 and 30 and 50 or even more <clears throat> so that that commitment to truth um provides community and and sense of um uh warmth and um and stability that's um such a wonderful thing so this is why I, you know it, it may not seem like a big deal you know telling white lies but um the positive force of truth and honesty um is uh, amazing it's incredible um and uh, really like you to consider that Okay, I think maybe one more question. Let's see. Simple one, it's a long one. Ah, thamyeongrai hai kan hai apai 
ป็นเรื่องง่ายๆวงเล็บเมื่อเรารู้อยู่เต็มอกว่าคนนี้ผิดแต่เมื่อเวลาผ่านไปเมื่อเรายัางไม่ปล่อยเราจึงเหมือนกลายไปเป็นฝ่ายที่ทำผิดเราจึงเหมือนกลายเป็นฝ่ายที่ทำผิดเสียเองโอเคเวลาอัน I think that there's um, forgiveness or การให้อภัย is another word that we use so frequently, and yet we don't really stop and ask us, what does what does it mean to forgive somebody? What what do we mean by that? Does anybody have a good definition of forgiveness? What do you mean when you say forgive somebody? What does that involve, forgiving somebody? Yeah, that's good. That's my answer. <laughs> yes, that is. A, I, I, I would say it's a very good answer because it was more or less my answer. <laughs> so we agree. Um, what the the point um, I, I I really like to make is we think like. Um, forgiving uh, means that we shouldn't have any uh, hurt feelings, or we should forget, or we shouldn't um, think about it anymore, or put it behind us, um, and so on. But what that um, entails, you know, is, is often this idea that we should be able to stop feeling in a certain way. You know, we shouldn't. Uh, we've forgiven them now. Means we're we're not um, angry anymore. But it, it's more forgiving somebody um, is uh, really um, is on the level of sila or conduct, body and speech. When we forgive somebody, means that we um, will not harm them. They don't have to worry. That we're taking, we'll take revenge on them. That we'll try to uh, create suffering for them in the future to pay them back. So when it's in the realm of action and speech, it's something that you can just decide. You know, like today, I'm going to forgive them. Means I'm not going to try to take any kind of revenge or make them feel unhappy in any way. But. In terms of the thoughts and the anger and the resentment um, and uh, uh, so on, you can't just decide not to have those feelings anymore because you've forgiven them. Because you, willpower doesn't work that way. You can't just make a decision not to feel a certain way anymore, even if it would be good if you could. But it's a practice of meditation or. Being mindful, when this angry thought comes up, um, then you recognize it. This is an angry thought. I'm not going to follow this, and you put it down. Um, so it's the it's the effort to let go. It's not actually letting go. That's maybe a long time in the future, but um, you start off in a practical sense of how you act and how you speak, and then your determination. 
is not to follow and not to indulge in and not to take pleasure in these thoughts of revenge. So, um, if somebody has acted very badly towards you, then uh, it's inevitable you're not going to trust them in the same way. You're not going to feel so comfortable in their presence. And that's the kamma that that person has created. Um, and um, I think it's quite uh, normal and, and natural. Um, if they're someone that you, um, that you have to meet regularly, socially, then just be with how it is right now. Yeah, it's like this. You know, you don't, you don't want to be, to get close to that person anymore, but you're polite to them and you, um, you don't create any problems for them. And then just gradually, um, things tend to, um, work out for themselves. Often you just find drifting yourself, drifting away. You don't see them so much anymore. And that's all right too. Um, but it's taking care of your mind and not allowing your mind to indulge in and to take uh, pleasure in negative, angry um, thoughts. But they may still pop up in your mind every now and again. And that's just uh, like an echo from something in the past. Okay, so I think that's enough for this morning. And we've got um, questions left over for the afternoon session. Um, also, if anyone has any new questions, then please feel free to add them to the pile.